topic is I, if you, if you, if you listened to the podcast or read the devotional this last week, I spent the first 20 years of my life, I'm 40 years old, turned 40 this year, spent the first 20 years of my life in the Wesleyan Church, which has a theology system based on Arminian theology. Um, and so that's the first half of my life. Arminian theology, one of the kind of the arguments with Calvinist theology, which is what most people on the West Coast have embraced. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put anybody in any category, so don't hear it that way. But um, the main contention is you can lose your salvation in Arminian camp. But then from, I moved out here in the summer of 2000, and I've spent the last 19 years in, uh, in Calvinist circles. I went to Multnomah Bible College, got my degree from a Calvinist school. They're, they're Calvinist in their theology and have spent most of the rest of my life in Baptist circles that teach Calvinism or parts of Calvinism, not usually all five points of Calvinism, but, but several, which teach eternal security, that you cannot lose your salvation. What I think that does for me is it kind of puts me in a really unique position where I have spent literally half of my life on both sides of this argument. And what I have sought to do, not just this week, but for many years now, is to really just try to understand what Scripture teaches about the topic. Not to bring in all of the ideas that, that have been passed down throughout the ages and all the arguments, but to just really get to the heart of what Scripture teaches and let that be my guide and our guide. And so you're going to discover what I believe Scripture teaches this morning. But before we get into that, we need to, I think, get started with truth. And you know, I expect to start hearing groans every time I mention truth because I talk about truth so often. But I want to talk about truth. Truth is that which corresponds with reality, right? You can look at something and say, this is so. This corresponds with reality. This is a table. That is a true statement because that corresponds with reality. You are sitting at a table and you are sitting in a chair. Those are true statements because that corresponds with reality. Something is either true or it's not. Something, you know, we, we talk about half-truths, and, and there I, I get some of that. A half-truth, though, is really still a lie, and we've talked about that a little bit in the past. But something is either true or it's not. For example, this is a plant. I brought it out here because I'm tired, and I hope if I put my nose in it, I'll get some oxygen out of the leaves this morning. But this is a plant, right? That is a true statement. Either this is a plant or it is not a plant, right? This is a plant, so that is a true statement. I can also say this is a living plant. This is a living plant, it is not plastic. I water it every week to keep it alive. So this is a living plant, either it is alive or it's not alive, right? This is a green living plant in a white pot with some stains on it, right? Those are true statements because they correspond with reality. If I were to say, this is a maraschino cherry on a stick, you would say, that is not true, right? Because it does not correspond with reality. This is a green plant and a white pot. 
If I say this is a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater, you would say this is not true because it does not correspond with reality. Now imagine with me that the plant is a person. And the plant, as the person says, I may be a plant, but I take that to mean I am a monster truck. Is that a true or false statement? Does that change the reality? It's still a plant, the plant is a person, if the plant is a person, the person is a person, and the person is a plant, that does not change because the person decides that I feel like I am a monster truck, right? Yes or no? Correct, okay. So you're tracking with me. This is truth. We have a pretty good understanding of truth. Now, if I believe this plant to be a spaceship, does this mean that my belief in the plant being a spaceship will be able to rocket me into orbit around the Earth just because I believe the plant is a spaceship? No. No, I can believe with all of my heart that this plant is a spaceship, and with all my heart I believe it's going to take me into the upper levels of the atmosphere, but that is not a possibility because it does not correspond with what is true, right? So, I'm trying to decipher my notes. Oh, okay, yeah, so. I want to try one quick experiment. We've done this in the past. Um, I'm going to need you guys to be, to be the rebels, to be the holdouts, and say, this is a plant, all right? Every other table has the responsibility of saying this is a spaceship, right? Okay, so if I interview anyone at the table, other than this table, when I ask you the question, what is this? Spaceship, okay. What is this? Spaceship. What is this? Spaceship. What is this? Spaceship. What is it? Spaceship. What is it? Spaceship. What is this? Spaceship. Everyone except this table, shout it out loud what this is. Keep going, say it over and over again. What is this? All right, so. Just because there are more voices saying that this is a spaceship and it's louder does not mean that this is an actual spaceship because it's a plant. That statement does not correspond with reality. So simply because more people are saying something does not make that statement true, right? We see this all over the world today in our current culture. Lots of people are shouting lots of ideas that are not true statements. They do not correspond with reality, and yet vast amounts of people are believing them with all their hearts. It's a very dangerous, dangerous situation. What's popular is not always right. What's right is not always popular. As we prepare ourselves to get into this, now, if you will, I'm, just, I'm gonna start cruising through my material so I don't keep you here until two o'clock this afternoon. I feel like I need to get through it. If you need to get up and move and go to the bathroom and get some coffee and do all that, feel free to do that. Um, I, I'm going to just plow right ahead. I'm gonna finish even if no one is in the room when I'm done. 
Some phrases I think we need to eradicate from our vocabulary as true believers. What I think the Bible means by, and then filling in this verse, right? I know the Bible says X, but I think that means Y. Or a phrase that I've heard many times is, I take that to mean. And I'm not going to get into some of the examples because there are many. But I know the Bible says X, but I take that to mean Y. We need to take that phrase out of our vocabulary, I take that to mean. The Bible means what it means, not what we want it to mean. And so our job is to understand what it means, which brings us to our first scripture for the day, Hebrews 5:11, which we read this past week. The author of Hebrews says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. And I fear this is a great problem in the Christian world today, especially in our country in America. We have stopped trying to understand. We are just receiving other people's ideas and not going to God himself to let him reveal his word to us as individuals. Instead, we're just believing what other people do and listening to other people's ideas. Our job is to continue to seek understanding as we go through the rest of our lives. And that's my job, my hope today, is to help us understand this passage. My, my goal, I have no desire this morning to explain this passage away. It's difficult, it makes me uncomfortable. It has made me uncomfortable for the last couple of days as I've thought about the gravity of this passage. I am not excited to teach this in hopes that it's really going to bash somebody upside the head this morning. I'm not going to try to explain it away, and I'm not going to explain it through the lens of my preconceived notions of what I think it means. I know that's probably impossible to do, but I'm doing my best to remove all of my filters of theology and get to what the text says. So we need to get that out of our minds. I take that to mean. What does the Bible actually mean? We need to get to the heart of it. We also need to... to uh, Stop giving so much weight to the phrase, I do or don't believe, right? Well, I just don't believe that that's what it says. This is what, we, this is what I'll, I'll hear a lot of times when there's a controversial passage. I just don't believe that's what it says. I don't believe that's what the passage is talking about. And we think that because we don't believe that that's what the passage is talking about, that lets us off the hook for being accountable to what the passage is talking about. And that's a huge huge danger to fall into. I do or don't believe is not the standard by which something is measured as true or false. We think I'm only accountable to what I believe, right? So uh, my beliefs is all that matters. That's not a true statement. My beliefs do not change what is true my beliefs determine whether I am true. My beliefs do not change what is true. My beliefs determine whether I am true, right? God is not going to judge us against my own beliefs and my own ideas of the truth. He is going to judge us against his truth. God is not going to bend to my beliefs. He cannot do that because as we're going to read later on this week, he cannot change. 
So because he cannot change, he cannot adapt to our ideas of what truth is supposed to be, he has to be faithful to who he has always been. That's his nature. So God will not bend to my beliefs, and that is a very, very good thing. If my beliefs and actions line up then with God's truth, then I am true, and I can worship the Father in spirit and truth. I can worship him with integrity. I can worship him with my whole nature because my beliefs and actions line up with God's truth. When they don't, I am untrue or I am out of alignment with God. If a line is true, it's straight. If it's not true, it diverges, right? So if I am true, I am in line with God. If I am untrue, I'm out of alignment with God. So it doesn't matter what I think the Bible means by what it says. It only matters what it actually says. And here, I think, is the huge danger that we've slipped into in our society today is that we are using our theology or our doctrine or even worse, our opinion to decipher what truth is in Scripture. We're using our theology or our doctrine, or worse, our opinion, to decipher the truth. We must be the kind of people, the kind of church, that seeks to understand what Scripture is actually teaching and saying. And when it's not clear, we can use other Scripture to interpret other Scripture. And if it's not clear, this is very important, if it's not clear, if it's still not clear at this point, our job is to lean into the tension. When there seems to be tension in Scripture, our job is to lean into the tension because it's there for a reason. What we have tried to do since the Enlightenment is when there is tension in Scripture, we try to explain it away. So we've created logical systems, theological systems, Arminianism and Calvinism to try to explain away all of the tension in Scripture. But the tension in Scripture is there for a reason, which I'm going to get into in a minute. So last week we talked about beliefs and that if we really believe something, we prove it by the way we live our lives, and that actually our actions are constantly proving our beliefs, right? That was what we talked about last week. The way, the way I live actually proves what I really believe. That's the evidence of our beliefs. It doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that our beliefs are right or wrong, it simply means that is what we believe. The way we live is in accordance with our current set of beliefs. So it doesn't matter what I believe this passage is saying, it matters what it's actually saying, and reality will prove what is right or wrong, because it's truth. But this isn't one of those passages you want to wait to figure out. The last one, I think the argument might be, can all these people have it wrong? I mean, can all of these people really just have it wrong? Do you really think you're smarter than all of these people, all of these theologians? No, I am definitely not smarter than all of these theologians. But like we said, just because a lot of people believe something doesn't make it right. What's right is not always popular. What's popular is not always right. If we were to follow that logic along these lines, our, our culture currently believes that there are many roads that lead to heaven. 
of all Americans, including Christians, 65% of Americans believe that there are many paths to get to heaven. That means 65% of the people in this room likely believe, I hope we're a little bit better than that, but likely believe that there are many paths that lead to heaven. But the truth is, there's only one way to heaven. Trusting and obeying in Jesus. All other roads, as much as it might pain us to think that there are millions and billions of people on this planet who are embracing a rebellious path and are in danger of spending an eternity separated from God, all other roads are rebellion against God's one way, the only true way. But the thing that's been crushing me lately isn't just the belief that 65% of Americans might hold this, tr- this belief, is that there are many, I would say, so-called Christians who have it wrong. People who think they are Christians because they have believed something that is not true. This is where I think there's a great danger in the church today. So again, my goal is not to try to start an argument, cause division, or debate. I will say, if you have serious questions or concerns or considerations, I would absolutely love to talk to you. If you have a desire to debate and argue and prove that you're smarter than me, I have absolutely no interest in that kind of conversation because you probably are smarter than me. It won't take us long to figure that out. But if you want to talk about this and really seek to understand what Scripture says, I would love to talk with you. I know our elders would love to talk with you. Jim would love to talk with you. Becky would love to talk with you. Becky, there's so many that would just love to have this conversation. And I love, I'm putting all of everyone on the spot. Have fun with that, everybody. (laughs) But this is a big tragedy, I think, that has happened to the church. There's been a tension in Scripture, tension in Scripture, and instead of embracing the tension as having a purpose, we have tried to explain or argue it away, and we have destroyed the unity of the church in the process. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 and Titus 3, 9 both say to have nothing to do with foolish controversies. I will absolutely not participate in a foolish controversial argument. And if anyone in our church, this might be the strongest statement I make today, if anyone from 6-8 church takes today's talk and argues with something about it, I will hunt you down and smack you, just so you know. I watched Taken this week. Context. Let's get into the context because we only understand Scripture in context. The context we have covered so far to this point is that Jesus is greater than the angels and the prophets. Those are the first couple of chapters. We covered that Jesus is greater than Moses, right? And we've also covered two of the five warnings. The first warning was in chapter two, which says, don't drift away. Be careful that you don't drift away. And then the second warning was, don't rebel or disobey like the Israelites did when they were in the wilderness. So those are the two warnings that we've covered so far. 
Last week we ended with, if you want to believe, if you really want to be the kind of person that believes but don't know how, come back this Sunday, that's what I said. I like, I like uh, cliffhangers, it's fun. This is what I wanted to cover because it's in this week's scripture. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which is our memory verse for this, says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the majesty, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are because he was a human, yet he did not sin like we sin. Let us then, here is the key verse, let us then, because of this truth, because this is what actually corresponds with reality, Jesus, our great high priest, ascended sits at the right hand of the majesty, he intercedes for us, he can empathize with us because he was human, let us then... Approach God's throne of grace with confidence, which we've talked about a lot already. We have the authority to go into God's throne, into God's presence with confidence because we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. So go into the throne of grace with confidence so that, why? Why do we go into the throne of grace with confidence? Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That word help is another nautical term. It means frapping the boat. That was one of our devotions this week. It means to take ropes and tie it around the hull of the boat in the storm so that the ship holds together. And so we, as we are going through the storm and the storm of this life, we are supposed to go into God's presence where we, find, where we receive mercy, that is not getting punished for what we have done, not punished like we deserve. We receive mercy and we find grace, God's unmerited favor that he gives us to help us in our time of need. If we are struggling to believe, the answer to belief is to go into God's presence, not to try to believe harder. The way to deeper belief is to draw nearer and nearer to God. So if you're struggling with belief, my advice would be spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time in God's word. Spend more time praying. Spend more time worshiping. Spend more time with other believers surrounded by people on the same journey and see if it's easier to believe. But that brings us to the third warning. It starts out with the scripture we've already read. You no longer try to understand. He says, you should be teachers by now. Many believers in America should be teachers by now. With the plethora and abundance of teaching that is available online, and honestly, the amount of teaching we consume, we should be teachers by now. But he says, we no longer try to understand. Then he introduces the idea of the solid food. He's been talking about milk. From my understanding, in the context of the passage, the milk that he's talking about is referring to our basic understanding of salvation and what Jesus did to provide us with salvation. The solid food that he wants us to move on to for maturity is in righteous living, the righteousness of the kingdom life. So he's warning us, he says here, the solid food, the teachings on true righteousness, that's from verse 13, are for those who have made a habit, literally that's what the word means, made a habit 
out of knowing good and evil. This is not for the lazy. Righteousness is not for the lazy. It's for the diligent, for the hard workers, which is one of the reasons we're working hard to work hard. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Everyone take a big gulp. It is impossible. I looked up what that word means. It means impossible. There are actually other meanings, but we'll get into that in just a minute. Impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It's a sobering warning. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. I believe those two verses he is recalling back to Jesus' parable of the sower and the different kinds of soils. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy. His word, not mine. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. There's the weighty warning. Earlier I used the phrase so-called Christians. I'm defining so-called Christians uh, in a certain way. First, I'm not, it's not based on any kind of denominational affiliation, doctrine, or political basis. Get that thinking out of your head that does not exist in my definition or mind. For our purposes, a believer is, for this conversation, a believer is someone who believes Jesus is the only way to heaven, that it is only through the free gift of grace that we can receive eternal life, and a believer is someone who, as a result of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, lives their lives as though they have been and are continually being changed by that grace. A believer is someone who receives the gift and works the gift. A believer is someone who receives the gift and works the gift. A so-called Christian, by my definition, is someone who may have made a decision or been coerced to make a decision or prayed a prayer but has not been changed by that grace and are not living by God's power. They may have supposedly received it, but then they go back to the old way of life. 
And I would say that the way we receive this warning changes depending on which group you're in. If you're in the first group, if you are a believer, it's a stern warning, but you have nothing to fear because your hope is secured to Jesus, verse 19. But if you're in the second group, it should be a wake-up call. If you feel like you're in the second group, that, that you may have received the initial prayer, you prayed the initial prayer, but nothing has happened since, wake up. And I think this is the message that Jesus wants to give us and give so many in the church today. Wake up! Now I understand that as a result of today's message, we may start to feel some insecurity and anxiety. And I would argue that the anxiety and insecurity exist for a reason. Hang with me here for a second. If we are feeling anxious, it's probably because we're living outside of God's ways. I'm not getting into the whole anxiety epidemic other than to say anxiety in, from 2016 to 17 increased by 36%. From 2017 to 2018, it increased by 40%. That is a mathematical increase of 91% over a two-year span. It's nearly double in two years. It's not 76%, it's 91%. What that should be telling us as a society is warning, warning, warning. Like Kevin from the office, warning, warning, warning. Why are we feeling such ridiculous anxiety as a culture? Aside from having our minds controlled by the media giants, <clears throat> That's a conspiracy theory we don't have time to get into today. But they just want you to spend more money and try to buy security and peaceful state of mind, but you always end up wanting more because you're anxious and so it never works out. But that's a totally different sermon. I would argue that the anxiety is there for a reason. The anxiety is there for a reason. And instead of trying to squelch the symptom, which is what I would argue anxiety is, we need to start to address the root issue. Why is the anxiety there? If we are feeling insecure, it's probably because there's something in our life that is taking precedence over God. And so if we hear this warning and it creates a level of insecurity, I think that's the point. We're supposed to feel insecure because if something in our life is out of line with God's will, His heart is to draw us back into perfect alignment with what He wants for our lives because He has better plans and purposes for us. So if you feel insecurity, don't let that insecurity trigger you and go off in the wrong direction, but let that serve as something God can use to draw you back into the right relationship. I think the reason we're feeling anxious and insecure is because as a society, we are subtly but quickly drifting away from God. It's not intentional, but we're subtly and quickly drifting away from God. I'm not talking about America being a Christian nation. That's my, not my point. I'm talking about the church. And as we've already seen, a first wave of people drifting away from God, I think there's probably going to be more to come because we're drifting and not addressing the drift. We have a false sense of security. We feel anxious because the enemy has been slowly distracting us from focusing on God to the tune of the average American spending 11 hours a day consuming various forms of media 
which means we are spending 65% of our waking hours consuming content from amoral or immoral sources. How much time are we spending with God? If those numbers are anywhere remotely accurate for any of us in this room, we should feel anxious. There should be something, an alarm going off in our spirit and in our soul saying, hey, something's not right here. Pay attention. Warning. Warning. This is not condemnation for people who feel anxiety. I'm not arguing against the need for medicine or any of those things. I'm arguing we need to spend more time focused on God. And if we're feeling anxious about this teaching or insecure, we should ask ourselves, why? So if you're starting to feel that way, just pray and ask God, why, why am I feeling anxiety? We feel insecure, I think it's because we're not living out God's truth. And here's where the problem is. Millions of Christians, I believe, in our society today have a false sense of security that's causing them to feel secure when they're living like hell and have no desire to put Christ first in their lives. That is a false teaching. Jesus would never give us a teaching that made us feel secure so that we could go off and live like the world. All of his teaching was about calls out from the world. So if this teaching makes us feel insecure, it's probably because we're a little bit out of alignment with God's truth. Our ship or our life, according to Hebrews 6.19, needs to be anchored to Jesus as our hope. And if our ship is not anchored to Jesus as our hope, if it's anchored to something else, then we're anchored to a false teaching. So this is from next week's scripture, but we're going to read it today because this is a key passage. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Remember that first week I put the rope around this beam? Our hope is anchored to... Our ship, our life is anchored to the hope of Jesus who is firm and secure. It's never moving, it's never changing because his promise is sure. He made an oath and he cannot change his oath because he cannot change. Our hope is anchored to the unchanging promise of God. That unchanging promise is Jesus Christ who enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, we're going to get into that concept a little bit more this coming week and this coming Sunday. Sunday. Our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf in behind the curtain. He's there in God's presence already waiting for us. And he has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Our hope has to be anchored to that, to Jesus, not to any other thing, not to any other theological system, teaching, or understanding. It's only anchored to Christ. Now, I want to quickly cover the arguments around this passage. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. I know that there's just probably a red flag to some people and you're about ready to throw things at me. 
To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. Argument number one. People try to deal with this passage in these five ways. First one is they say it's hypothetical. The warning is hypothetical, just like a kid, you know, if your kid is misbehaving on the way to the theme park, you, you might threaten not to go to the theme park, but you know you're going to the theme park because you bought the tickets for the theme park, so it's a hypothetical threat. It's not a real threat. That's the first argument. But the author has already talked about times up until this point in the letter where God has made a threat to try to get people back, his people back in alignment and followed through on the threat. So why would the author create a hypothetical threat in the context of already fulfilled threats? I think that argument has some problems. Argument two is the loss of salvation. This one is the one that can really set you off if you go and, uh, and look, this, look it up on YouTube. They say, this passage can't possibly be saying what it's saying. It can't be saying that a believer can lose their salvation because a believer can never lose their salvation. This is the argument. This is literally the argument. I heard three or four different people make this exact same argument. This has nothing to do with what the author is saying. You can't be saying what it's saying because it contradicts my theology. The question is not, they will say, can I lose my salvation? The question is, can God lose me? These are arguments that they make. The question, I can't, it's not about whether I can lose my salvation, it's about whether or not God can lose me. Of course God can't lose me. I actually agree with all of these statements. It can't be saying that you can lose your salvation because you can't lose eternal life. It's eternal. It's impossible to lose eternal life. And it's a gift of God's grace, which means you didn't earn it, and if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. So you cannot lose your salvation. God is a father, and when he adopts you into his family, you're his kid. He's not going to tell you to not be a kid anymore. You cannot lose your salvation. We don't lose our salvation because it would mean that Jesus Christ would have to lose a Christian. And like we have sung and celebrated already today, Romans chapter 8, how wide, how, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. While I 100% agree with the idea that the security of the salvation of the believer is true, none of these arguments come from within the text itself. We're bringing our ideas of theology and imposing them on the text and let them, instead of letting the text speak. And because of that, we're not paying attention to the text. Argument number three is that the author was talking to unbelievers. It was people who just tasted Jesus but didn't actually believe in Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm, I hope... I, I feel like I might be coming across kind of condescending, and I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. But that this, this is an argument that is addressed to non-believers, people who tasted it but didn't believe. The problem is, with that argument, the author has never addressed an unbeliever anywhere in the letter, here or elsewhere. It's not in the text. And another problem is if this is a passage that is only for, if it's a warning that's only for unbelievers, then what would the believers do when they hear the other warnings in the letter? 
I'd probably tune out and not pay attention. Argument number four, I feel like this is the most ridiculous one, and I apologize if you're holding this, and I don't mean to belittle it, but they say this is a loss of blessings argument. That somebody who is a believer and goes through this situation, they will just forfeit blessings above and beyond their salvation. Again, it's not in the text. That idea, that concept is nowhere to be found as far as I know really in the book of Hebrews. So I don't think that's what the author intended. Again, we're trying to get to what the author intended because that's what the Holy Spirit inspired, not my interpretation based on my preconceived notions and theology. I think the best argument from a textual perspective is what they call the absolute for the relative. It's a writing technique used in biblical literature, especially in New Testament times. It's essentially what we would call hyperbole, exaggeration for emphasis' sake. To understand how this might be possible, we have to understand the context, which you may have forgotten. But the context of the letter is, the letter is that the, the, the letter was written and addressed to people, Jews, who had professed Christianity, and then because they were starting to get persecuted or oppressed, were starting to convert back to Judaism. They had professed Christ, and because it becomes difficult to follow Christ, they're starting now to turn back. And this is what the author is addressing throughout this whole letter. His whole argument is about Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, and warning people to steer away from Jesus' warning, where he says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. When the people went back to Judaism from Christianity, they had to renounce Christ. We get a picture of this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul is talking about this, and he says that they would have to say, no one can say, uh, uh, I can't remember the whole context of the verse, but if you can say Christ is Lord, then you're of the faith. Uh, no, one with, no one in Christ can say Jesus is cursed. That's essentially what he says. So if you say Jesus is cursed and that's what you mean to curse Jesus, then you're not really of Christ. What's the curse? There was an actual curse that people going back to Judaism from Christianity had to pronounce on Christ. Jesus, may you be boiled in a pit of urine and feces for all eternity. This is the curse that they would have to utter to come back into Judaism. Jesus is accursed. No, that's from history. I think what the author is arguing is that it's impossible for someone who takes a stand against Jesus and curses him to be brought back to repentance. At the very least, if he's using the absolute for the relative as a form of writing, if he's using exaggeration for emphasis sake, what he's saying is it's extremely and unlikely at the, at the writing of this letter that someone is going to disown Jesus and want to come back. It's impossible for them to come back. I would argue the text means what it says. 
If you curse Jesus, it's impossible to come back. That's a hard teaching. I don't like that one. I think it was extremely unlikely that someone would return after cursing Jesus because the cost was so high. The cost was already high to convert out of Judaism into Christianity. Now to come back, the cost is high. To come back again, it's probably impossible. Do not hear that warning, though, and think that you cannot bring somebody back who has wandered from the truth. Because that's not what the author is saying. He's not talking about someone who has wandered from the truth. He's talking about someone who flat out curses Jesus in a repulsive way. But James chapter 5 says, My brothers, if anyone, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If someone wanders from the truth, can they be brought back? Absolutely, 100% without a doubt, they can be brought back. But you may know someone, you may know people in your life who have cursed Jesus, and that's hard, if not impossible, to come back from. I would argue, though, that doesn't mean we stop loving and reaching and praying and doing whatever we can for them. The impetus behind this letter is that the author was addressing the apostasy of the Jewish Christians, that specific thing, who are actually cursing Jesus using that language above. My guess, if you're feeling a little anxious and insecure, most, if not all of us in the room, are not in that danger. Yet. It doesn't mean the time won't come. If you're worried that this might be you, it's probably not you. If you're in this room and you're worried about, I don't know, am I in Christ? You know, you're, you're, you know, I would say that you're, you're fine. You might have a little anxiety, some things that you need to get in line with God's truth, but you're, you're good. Don't worry about your salvation. I think where the real danger lies today is that the millions of Americans who believe they have nothing to worry about when they die because they prayed the magic words of a prayer with no consideration given to life after that prayer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think what the author is warning, don't be like the people of Israel. Don't be like the people of Judah. By the way, the, the, the Old Testament version of the name Judah uh, uh, the New Testament version of the Old Testament word Judah is Judas. Don't be like Judas, who spends a lot of time with Jesus but never believes. 
never has that heart change that draws you into relationship with Christ. So you might be asking, what do I think? Are believers secure in their salvation? Yes, absolutely. I have a sheet I would like to pass out. If we can pass these around. There's 30 copies you might have to share. Are believers secure in their salvation? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, you can rest in the security of your salvation because your hope is in the promise of Christ, not in your ability to receive or earn the promise. So you can be, as a believer, secure in your salvation. Can a believer lose their salvation? No but they can reject it, drift away from it, and fall away from it. According to scripture, according to what I've studied in scripture, according to the author of Hebrews, you can drift away from your salvation. You can reject your salvation. You can fall away. You might be asking, well, you know, like a lot of Wesleyans, I grew up, you know, with this kind of thinking. If I die without, with unconfessed sin in my life, am I going to go to hell? No. Not from what I can tell from Scripture. Because our salvation is not dependent on us. It's the free gift of God. We have to pass this test. The test that we have to pass is dying to our rebellious nature and rebelling against God, embracing our sin nature that resists God. We have to die to that and submit to God through trust and obedience. This is what the author, I think, is arguing. If we, if we pass that test, if we believe in the work of Jesus Christ, if we die to our rebellious nature, put that to death, and submit to God's higher ways for our lives through trust and obedience, just like Jesus did in the garden, just like he did when he was there the night before he was going to be crucified, and he knelt in the garden, and he was straining over going to the cross, and he said he prayed a prayer of rebellion against the Father. Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, the thing that you sent me here to do, I don't want to do it. He knelt in the garden and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But the reason Jesus is the perfect one to go into the holy place and pave the way for us to be our trailblazer is because he felt the temptation to rebel, but he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Three times... He resisted the temptation to rebel against God and followed God's will to the cross. That's our test. Will we follow Christ's example? Die to ourselves, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. These are true disciples. I'm not done yet. John chapter 10. 
One of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There is nothing anyone can do to steal away your salvation. The enemy has absolutely no authority to come and take your salvation away. In that sense, that's what I mean. You cannot lose your salvation as though some accidental act by some uncontrollable force, you lose your salvation. Nothing can change that. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. My Father who has given it to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a, a huge promise we need to understand. At the same time, we need to realize, yes, no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch a believer out of the Father's hand. But the Father is not going to drag someone against their will who has embraced sin, who is cursing him, and who is kicking and screaming against the will of God into his eternity. God is not going to do that. And I think there are a lot of people who think, I'm good, I prayed this prayer, and I'm living in rebellion, and I'm embracing sin, and I'm embracing the ways of this world and the ways of this life, and I'm good because no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. But they're not. They're not good. God is not going to drag a sinner into his holy presence against their will absolutely will not do that. So what do we do with this? Well, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, it's going to start getting encouraging at this point, I hope. <clears throat> even though we speak like this, dear friends, this strong warning he's just talked about, even though we're saying really strong words, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may become fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to intimidate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not just believed, but obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. It's not just something that God forces on you. God does not work that way. He works in cooperation with us. And the truth is, God loves every single person in this room too much to leave us in a way of sin that's causing us harm. He knows that sin unravels and deforms the spirit of someone who continues to embrace it. And God does not want anyone to embrace something that is unraveling them and destroying them. His plans are so much greater than that. 
And he wants diligent followers who are constantly in his presence working out their salvation. Does that mean we earn it? No, you're not earning your salvation, but you have to work it out. It's not just something we do haphazardly. It's not just something that God does all the work and we just coast. God wants us to work out our salvation, this gift he has given to us, with diligence. And that's a huge part of the problem with the false sense of security is that there are a lot of lazy, lounger, so-called Christians And I believe the enemy has woven this false security lie into the fabric of the American church to the point that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but probably aren't. Because they are living by this lie, they don't feel the insecurity or the anxiety, so they never change anything. And I believe the anxiety is there for a reason. The tension is there for a reason. The insecurity is there for a reason. It's a checkpoint. Why am I feeling anxious? Am I walking with Jesus or the world? If I'm feeling anxious right now, I need to ask myself the question, am I walking with Jesus or am I walking with the world? Am I feeling insecure? Why am I feeling insecure? Am I feeling insecure about my salvation? Why am I feeling insecure about my salvation? Is it because I'm trying to earn my salvation and I keep coming up short because I'm not really trusting in God's promise, I'm trusting in my ability? I would feel insecure too. Are we feeling insecure because I've been embracing my old sinful life and and I have every reason, honestly, to feel insecure? So I think if if we're feeling anxious or insecure about our relationship with God... We don't need to do away with the scriptures that are making us feel anxious and insecure. What we need is to let God illuminate every part of our lives, every part of our heart, and the parts of our heart that have been hardened to his truth is where he needs to come in the most and illuminate those things. And we need to confess those sins that we have embraced in our hearts and have allowed to become idols in the temple where God is supposed to dwell. And we need to deny ourselves and die to whatever life we're clinging to that isn't Christ. We need to let God uncover the lies. The tension is there for a reason. Yes, we are secure. God will never change his mind or break his promise. You can rest assured of that. But if we deny and curse God's son, we're in danger. Can someone come back from that? from uttering that curse? I hope so. It's unlikely. Fortunately, we're not in that position yet. I don't think. God loves you, God loves me, God loves every one of us in this room as his child. Nothing we can do will ever change his mind about that. His promise to us is unchangeable because he is unchangeable. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to save us. But God is also just. And he has promised that anyone who denies the son will be cursed. 
So if God gives you this incredible blessing, this incredible gift of salvation to draw you into his presence while you're still walking here on this earth so that you can be transformed into the likeness of a son, don't curse the blessing. That's what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. Hey, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's getting hard out there. I, I know that the, that, the, that the level of oppression against you as followers of Jesus Christ is rising and continuing to rise on a regular basis. I know, I know that the pressure to turn away from Christ is increasing. I know that there is a large group of people who are actively trying to pull people out of Christ and back into the old ways. Hey, hey, don't do that. Don't you remember? Didn't you hear Jesus' words? Don't deny me. If you're concerned, you're probably fine. But I think there is also something we can learn from this warning for every believer. First, for ourselves. What can we learn as we respond to the warning? Thank you for your patience in dealing with me this morning. For ourselves, maybe we should take our spiritual journey towards righteous maturity more serious. It's a warning for believers. Are you diligent? Have we been diligent in our relationship with Jesus or have we just been kind of mailing it in? For others in our lives, there's also a warning. Instead of assuming that people are going to heaven when they die based on the lie that 65% of us believe, we should be a lot more intentional and intense about those in our lives whose current status with God is rebellion. I think if we believe that lie, they're going to be good in the end, right? Everyone's going to go to heaven. At least that's what I think. And I think that's what's going to happen, so I don't really have to worry about it because, you know, they're going to go to heaven. God certainly wouldn't, wouldn't not let people into his heaven. We believe the lie. I think that lie has shaped the way that we approach everything, not just our relationship, but our outreach Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we, I am convinced of better things for us. I am absolutely convinced that God is doing better things in this church. God is not going to forget the work that we have done in showing love to people, the love that we have shown him. He will not forget the way that we have helped people and continue to do so. We must continue to show the same diligence to the very end so that our hope may become a reality. We have to be diligent to the end, diligent to the end, diligent to the end so that our hope becomes a reality. So don't become lazy. Don't, don't just start mailing in your faith and hoping that it's all going to be good. Take active steps. Take an active approach towards Jesus. Walk towards Jesus. Chase hard after Jesus. Live into Jesus. Don't just think you're okay. Make sure that you're okay by being in his presence. And imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. Imitate those who have gone before us. Imitate grandparents who have set an example and have gone ahead of us. 
and have inherited the promise. Imitate Abraham who believed God and was credited to him as righteousness because he was willing to offer up his son, believed that he would get him back from the dead because God could do that. Follow that example. Follow the example of someone that's willing to go to the grave for faith. Our big idea for this week is the promise only becomes a reality for those who are diligent to the very end. I know that's a strong statement, but my job is to speak the truth in love. Promise only becomes a reality for those who are diligent to the very end. Hebrews 6, verse 11. Our weekly identity statement is, I am moving beyond the elementary teachings of salvation and into the maturity of righteousness. We love salvation. Salvation is awesome. God has saved us from our muck and mire condition. He pulled us up out of the disaster that we were in. He set us free from the bondage of the slavery of our sinful condition. That's awesome. God is giving us resurrected life. That is, that is an amazing gift that God has given us. That's, that's incredible. That's that's an abundantly gracious and generous gift. God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this kind of life. It's an amazing gift. God wants to give you the Holy Spirit. He wants to give everyone in this room the works and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's That's an amazing thing. That's just the beginning. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. That's just the beginning. That's the starting point of salvation. We need to move beyond the elementary teachings and into righteousness, into the righteousness of Christ, the promise that Christ has for us. I don't know about you, but I am moving beyond the elementary teachings. I love salvation. I'll never stop preaching salvation. We'll never stop offering salvation. We'll never stop doing anything related to salvation. But if the author of, of Hebrews says that the maturity is better than the elementary teachings, I want the maturity. I will be available after the sermon today if you have questions, concerns. I'm sure I haven't done this perfect to make you feel better. There are about 12 more pages of notes that uh, I cut out. Thank you. And I think that is God's desire. It's love. And he loves us so much. He doesn't want anything less than his best for us. It wouldn't be loving if he held things back. It wouldn't be loving if he kept secrets from us that were going to, in the end, condemn us. But because he loves us, he 
He tells us what we need to know so that we can inherit the promise. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask our prayer team to go around to the tables, if you will. As we close, as, as I'm praying, if you would like to pray with someone, I encourage you to go to one of the small tables around the perimeter of the room. We have men and women at uh, different tables. So men, you can go pray with men if you'd like. Women, go pray with women. God may be checking us as a result of this. Let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. Are you feeling anxious, feeling anxiety about your relationship with God? If you are, I think the anxiety is there for a reason. God wants to deal with something. Do it today. Don't wait. Are you feeling insecure in your relationship with God? If you are, I think the insecurity is there for a reason. There's something that God probably wants to draw you back in alignment with his way. And it's out of his love that he's starting to poke at that area in your heart. Deal with it today. Don't wait. The author of Hebrews says, while it's still called today, do it while it's still called today. If you'd like to pray with someone, I encourage you as I pray to go around the room and pray, ask for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you have loved us so much that you have poured out in abundance your love, that you are, your love is abundant. It is not limited, it is abundant, that you have offered your gift of love, your salvation to all, on, to every single human on the face of the planet that would choose to believe in you. Everyone who wants your free gift of salvation is able to receive it. You have offered it for all of us, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that that is a promise, that is the way that you love us, you love us so much. I ask, Father, in the moments that we have remaining in our time together and the rest of this afternoon and in the week ahead, that you would just start to call to mind anything in our life that is not of you, anything that is pulling us away from you and out, of, out from underneath your umbrella and into our own area of umbrella and protection. I pray, Father, open up our eyes to see the things that we've been blind to maybe for years. Start to poke in our hearts at those idols that are taking up residence in our heart where only you were designed to live. And I pray, Father, that you'd give us the courage to renounce our worship of that idol and embrace only our worship of you, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is exalted to the highest place, the one whose name is above every name, the one at whose name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord God. We thank you that your name is above every name and we ask, Father, that you help us to live more into that name this day and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone stand.